Come along to the spectacular dyspraxic event everybody is talking about. Keep fit with our free twice-weekly fitness workout. Search Dyspraxic Cardio King Mike on social media for more information. Dyspraxia Alliance is run by a group of dyspraxia advocates who are dedicated to providing support, advice, online safety, advocacy and much more. Find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Struggling with your DIY, we can do it for you. A decorating tiling, window care, bathrooms, kitchens, on suites too. Commercial and industrial, RFDP and does it all. Roofing, fencing, landscaping, why not give us a call? RFDPM Covering the southeast of England, please call 07958 249 781 for a free, no obligation quotation. We believe every child has potential. We know everyone learns differently. We have learned that one size never fits all. Neurodivergent children and young adults should have the world at their feet. We provide the specialist equipment to help make that possible. For more information on how we can help and the equipment we can supply, please visit www.equipforlearning.org.uk. Holly Smale is an award-winning and multi-million best-selling author. Her work includes Geek Girl, Model Misfit, Picture Perfect and All That Glitters. She was unexpectedly spotted by a top London modelling agency at the age of 15 and spent the following two years falling over on catwalks, going bright red and breaking things she couldn't afford to replace. By the time Holly had graduated from Bristol University with a BA in English Literature and an MA in Shakespeare she had given up modelling and set herself on the path to becoming a writer. Originally meant to be a trilogy, the Geek Girl series consists of six books. The humorous fiction follows the life of Harriet Manners, a nerdy 15-year-old girl who tries out modeling to reinvent herself. Harriet is a semi-autobiographical version of Holly portraying many neurodivergent traits and characteristics. Geek Girl was the number one best-selling young adult fiction title in the UK in 2013. It was shortlisted for several major awards including the Roald Dahl Funny Prize and the Branford Bowes Award, nominated for the Queen of Teen Award and won the Teen and Young Adult category of the Waterstones Children's Book Prize and the 11-14 category of the Leeds Book Award. Along with being dyspraxic, Holly was most recently diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum at the age of 39. Hello Holly, welcome to the podcast, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. I know, it's my pleasure. You've had a somewhat of a busy um, couple of weeks since you um, posted something really personal on on social media. And um, I'm glad to be speaking with you. You're you're on high demand today, by all accounts. (laughs) Yeah, it's been overwhelming, actually, but in a lovely way. Um, I didn't expect, you know, any kind of any real feedback or response. So, uh, yeah, it's been amazing. So was it like um i'll go into it later in the podcast but i won't go into it so much now but was it 
a not a throwaway sort of um, tweet or, or, or social media post? Was it more something you wanted to share in general, or was you not was you expecting it to go to sort of reach many people, or was it just something you was hoping to share to help other people? Um, well, actually, um, so I uh, knew that I wanted to, like, I, I made the uh, decision, I, I thought about it a lot and decided I wanted to share um, my autism diagnosis, which happened in, well, it was officially in October last year. Um, yeah. So I had time to think about it. Um, and I knew that for me to kind of get my point across in a way that was, you know, my narrative rather than um, potentially getting it wrong with an interview or something like that that um the best way for me to do it was to write a feature because you know writing is my my skill um so i i wrote a piece for the the times uh, magazine um about my autism diagnosis um and then when it came out i decided to share that on social media so yeah i i kind of didn't expect anything to be honest i just mostly expected people to be like oh right okay cool shut up <laughs> um and actually it's been incredible like i've been welcomed to you know to a number of different communities with, with open arms. Um, I've, I've had people contacting me from parents to uh, children to, you know, autistic adults or people think that they might need a diagnosis. You know, it's been, it's been incredible. So yeah, I just thought I'd put it out there and it'd be like three likes, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you spill your guts out online and you know, yeah. um, and you hope for like someone to read it, but you don't expect, that many people to, to see it and go wow like <laughs> yeah it's a big shock you're like you kind of yeah you hope someone will read it that it's not just your parents but you know it's it's always a big shock I, I even after years and years of being an author I, I still get shocked when anyone reads anything I say all right <laughs> well that's it because obviously you, you're you know you're a multi-million um, selling author so how do you find people uh, when people share your or, or like the the normal stuff like your day-to-day -day sort of life stuff is that kind of does that, does that uh, scare you a little bit or do you find that just as well as as when you sell books oh, it's disorientating because you know I'm I'm a writer by trade but also by nature and so most of my time I spend on my own uh kind of in an imaginary world um so I don't really see myself as a person that's that interesting to be honest I think that my my kind of my offering to the world is my books um so it's always a bit of a shock when people are like now tell us about you and I'm like what why <laughs> what's the what why what's the point um so I guess I mean obviously with me it's been a, an interesting um way around because obviously I was writing um my books about Harriet Manners and Geek Girl for nearly a decade um and without realizing that either she was autistic or I was autistic um so it, it it was weird to uh come at it from that direction so rather than being diagnosed and writing about autism I was writing about autism before being diagnosed um so yeah I, I guess the reality is is that you know my books are about um my were, were about me being vulnerable um about my school experiences about what it was like being a teenager um and so it makes sense that people want to know more on like a personal basis in real life as well as in fiction <laughs> Because I, I asked that question really because um, somebody posted online um, saying that I was a personal, uh, a public figure, but I don't see myself as that. And it's quite, I found it quite daunting the fact that um, like I'm just someone that raises awareness for dyspraxia. I don't really see myself as a, a celebrity or minor figure or public figure, or whatever. But it's quite daunting to think people now can sort of put your name out in the stratosphere because yeah. it's just. No, it's like it's like a chef. They choose to cook, but they they're behind in the kitchen. They don't really want their face out on 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 billboards. Does it make sense? 
Yeah, yeah. It's a really weird, you know, the, the irony that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of becoming, uh, you know, maybe something that you're doing as a professional or something you're doing is like a, you know, something that you're passionate about is um, sort of maybe something that's quite, I don't know, private in the case of writing. And then they're like, and now you've got to go and talk to everyone about it. <laughs> and you've yeah. got to be, you're going to be recognised. And, you know, it's surreal. Like, even though I've been doing it for years, like, I never completely get my head around it like you know if I meet someone and they're really nervous or in in the past I've had people cry when they meet me and I'm like I I also feel like crying like I'm like honestly I'm I'm just completely as overwhelmed and as as nervous as everybody else I'm talking to so it's it's, yeah it's a strange situation um and not one that you know we we all necessarily chase I guess yeah yeah I, I get that, I get that. <laughs> um so can I can I really start by sort of asking about sort of I ask every guest this about your childhood and upbringing just so that people can get a sort of uh a picture in their head of, of sort of how everyone um is brought up and how it impacts them into adulthood if that's okay yeah of course uh so I am from a little suburban sort of uh London satellite called Welling Garden City where I'm from um so you know it's not it's not a big place it's not particularly exciting sorry to everyone else in the garden but I think we'd all agree that there are better more exciting places um and you know I'm from a, a small house one sister uh, no pets mum and dad um and you know I went to a normal comp school um I was always um uh I would say a different child I know I was often described as special which I think is sometimes uh, what people want to say and in, 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 in effort to not use other words essentially um and I was uh, I mean I, I was undiagnosed autistic um I'm also dyspraxic um so yeah they, I, I was uh, a loner I liked my own company and still do um I was hyperlexic so very very good with words um you know I could write poetry at four years old but was really had a very spiky skill set so pretty bad at a lot of other things uh found communication really difficult um found environments really overwhelming constantly climbed in cupboards and under tables um struggled with any kind of physical activity so was constantly and still am falling over struggling to pick up pens you know all that kind of thing um and uh, I was just seen as a bit of an oddball essentially um which was fine when I was younger and then got pretty nasty later at secondary school when the bullying started uh so yeah I was I was you know I think it was just well because it was the 80s there wasn't really much awareness at all about any of those things so I was just put down as being uh clever clumsy and bookish essentially um and got missed essentially (laughs) so so you mentioned dyspraxia when did you get diagnosed with dyspraxia sorry uh so I've never actually been diagnosed with dyspraxia I had like um the psychologist said it does also sound like you are dyspraxic but that's not her like that wasn't the area we were focusing on um but I've always I've always known that um, I struggle with fine motor coordination. So I struggle, I struggle with, um, I mean, pretty much everything. I can't get coffee on a spoon into a mug. Um, yeah. I, I can't walk into it. I will try and walk through a doorway and I will walk into the door. Um, I'm constantly, you know, falling over just because I can't, um, I, I have to focus when I move my feet and my legs. Um, so it might be that I'm, I, maybe I'm not maybe I maybe I shouldn't actually say that I am dyspraxic but um from what I've read and what from what the psychologist sounds like it does sound like I'm um definitely possibly I don't know 
I would, what I would like to say is um, I would never discount the fact that you're dyspraxic regardless of your uh, formally diagnosed or self-diagnosed because our community believes in self-diagnosis just as much as formal diagnosis purely for the fact that it's so expensive in this country to get a, a dyspraxia diagnosis because it's so, um, you know, it's, it's the acknowledgement in this country of it, is, acknowledgement of it, of it in this country is, is so little and yeah. um, people have have no choice but to sometimes self-diagnose themselves and so with autism, yeah 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 I mean I, I'm actually in the, in the uh about to get um diagnosed with autism myself I mean I'm in oh, the process okay. so that's been a long struggle so for me it's yeah. the way, way, way around I found it easy to get a dyspraxia diagnosis as a child but not the yeah. autism one so it swings around about so I think yeah yeah and it's you know it's it I'm it's because of, because I have a clinical um, I, um, diagnosis of autism it I, I feel perhaps um, like less I think I feel more nervous saying I'm dyspraxic when I don't have that formal diagnosis but you're right it shouldn't be there are such men, so many barriers to for diagnosis for both of those things that you know I think it's important that that both are, are valid um, my mum is I believe diagnosed dyspraxic um, and she also has ataxia so um you know it's um it's something that's, that I've always been kind of aware of and and the the, the whole you're just clumsy thing doesn't quite cover it <laughs> like um which is I'm sure you 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 know that like yeah yeah um yeah it's not it's not quite the same thing like I have to literally use a part of my brain just to walk and get off a chair um I can't do it just just naturally without thinking about it you know yeah um, so yeah so that's that was that was always my and you know it is part of my um you know childhood experience I guess and and the fact that I couldn't do sports and and I couldn't throw balls or anything like that didn't really help with my inability to make friends or socialize or anything like that um, yeah I understand yeah 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 so it's interesting you, you mentioned your mum is diagnosed is diagnosed dyspraxic what yes. what would you say your childbirth was like from her recollection was it quite well, stressful or easy going? Um, I'm not completely sure. Um, so, so she is um, also autistic. Um, so again, that has be, been diagnosed since self-diagnosis. Um, not well, no, self-diagnosed because she's in her 70s now, so she doesn't feel the need to chase her diagnosis. Sure. Um, she, I mean, yeah, I think it was. Um, I, I had I had a good childhood when I was younger. I, you know, my my family are close. My mum's. Uh, an incredible person so um yeah I think a lot of things got missed because you know obviously with autism um the the obvious the literal is the way our brains tend to work um and the hints and the suggestions perhaps slightly go over our heads to say the least um so I think that any uh indications previously um that perhaps people tried to explain to either me or my parents got missed uh you know so for instance I was described as a special child with their own path when I was three by my nursery teacher um I was then made cupboard monitor at the age of eight by my uh secondary school teacher who told my mum that I should be put in a very small girls school with children like me um and my doctor at 17 told me that I was wired differently to other people um but 
all of those things went over both our heads. So essentially, I think I spent a lot of my childhood with people going, <clears throat> and me, me and my mum going, what? <laughs> you haven't used the word, so we don't get it. Sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can hit as much as you like, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did it, did it become sort of prominent um, to the people around you that, that you had sort of differences in the way that you was growing up from other people then yes yeah I mean yeah always um I think it was it was pretty much commented on constantly by everyone around me adults and children um which is difficult especially when you're not diagnosed and don't really understand why everyone else is um constantly pointing out that you're not the same you know they're they're whether it's in a nice way or a nasty way even if it's like why do you speak weird or like why are you sitting like that or why do you you know it's just this constant barrage of of questions about why you're not the same can really um can really damage you in the long term because you just you, you know you're at that formative stage in your life and where you're working out who you are and your place in the world and you know you're like hot wax and you're being molded at that point and if the way that you're being molded is you're wrong you're everything you do everything you say everything every way you move is wrong that's what you tend to you know absorb and that's how I absorbed it which is you know why by the age of 39 I genuinely thought I was just broken that I didn't know what was going on yeah yeah it's a it's a shame we get we we get to that place where we feel like that and it's the way that people make us sometimes um think like that and it's it's a, yeah. it's, it's it's a, it can become an upfield uphill battle to to change that mindset for ourselves because nobody else can really change that it's down to us i think to sort of make up believe in ourselves yeah and you're having to especially when you're diagnosed as an adult you're essentially having to undo uh decades of uh you know programming essentially um you know and I like during after my clinical diagnosis the psychologist who was really lovely um you know went through the whole yes definitely definitely autistic couldn't be couldn't be more sure um and then she was like you know but on a personal note um I'm deeply concerned about your self-esteem levels um and I think that you need to be working on that consciously now um because you know so it's no no fault of your own but you've spent a life being told that there's something wrong with you um and you have uh, believed it essentially so you know it's it's a really long process trying to undo all that trauma essentially yeah yeah and and even that's after you've you've sort of done really well in your your career and you've you've you know you're you've won awards you've sold a load of books you know you still feel like that and it's 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 it goes to show that it's not materialistic things it's it's a it that make you happy it's more your self-esteem and how you believe in yourself that can kind of lift you up yeah and those external things you know success and and awards and that kind of thing they don't really have an impact on your self-esteem i know that sounds crazy but like they don't really you know if you if you if if you know you go home and the voice in your head is saying why why would you behave like that why would you do that why would you say that why you know there's something wrong with you or or you know if in your personal relationships for instance I have a tendency to have very um uh unhelpful relationships um where you know they're constantly saying um you're it's weird that you say this it's weird that you do this it's weird and and it doesn't matter how many awards you win when you've got that voice either internal or external coming in constantly telling you that you've screwed up or that you're an awful person or that you can't manage anything 
it makes no difference how successful you are essentially yeah yeah and, and do, do you think of yourself as a an outsider even though you've won those accolades and, and earned that success um both in your personal and career um circles yeah i'm always going to be an outsider um part and part of the good thing about my diagnosis is that i uh, that's how i'm built that is my wiring i mean i can't speak i will not speak for everybody else but for me my my wiring is that i am on the outside looking in of everything i'm always there's a gap between me and the rest of the world um and it's not just caused by trauma from when i was a child and growing up you know that is how I see the world there's always a gap between me and them and so I'm never really part of anything and I think part of the diagnosis is is kind of learning to be okay with that and actually I don't need to be on the inside ever I can be on the outside and and be happy and content with that um so again it's just learning to understand yourself and your own particular needs better maybe yeah and I I definitely feel um having spoken to you today so far that my podcast, sort of the idea of doing it was to meet people like yourself, sort of notable people in the community that have the same differences as myself and as my, my peers, but who even even after having success still feel like they're an outsider and, you know, it hasn't changed much in the way of our ability to sort of be happy and um, feel like we're part of, every, like, of the world like everybody else is. So I feel like, you know, you're, you're, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like on a mutual respect there, where I feel like I'm still on the outside looking in, and it's, it's very difficult. But, um, but no, it's yeah. good to, good to know there's others out there like ourselves. Yeah, yeah, and actually, I was looking into it, and you know, although it's, it's a complex background and something I'm still learning about, I think that's important to say. Like, you know, when you're a person of interest, that sounds like I'm in a FBI police lineup, but like. When, <laughs> are a person with um, some kind of um, social media standing or whatever it is um, there is the kind of tendency to believe that you everything you say is like gospel like you you know you you, you're right about everything or you you know like I'm still learning I've I'm still very much active in the kind of uh, researching and learning process of what it is what you know what is what is autism where did it come where did when did they start learning about it and all that kind of thing um one of the things that i've learned recently actually is the word autistic etymologically uh ought is self you know same as like automobile um and uh ism is usually like sort of state of being so it's like self state of being and you know it is because we were observed originally as being standoff away outsiders from society that we didn't want to integrate that we didn't want to be part of the masses that was how it was you know that was one of the original um kind of definitions if you like of autism so um and I definitely myself feel that I definitely have always felt like an outsider like an alien or like a you know someone that there's just a connection that I don't quite have with the rest of mankind um and I think that part of breaking down the stigma is actually instead of going, hey, we can fit in, we can be like you, which most of us spend our lives trying to do and failing and masking. And, you know, it's it's distressing and exhausting, but actually going, hey, I'm I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all right on my own. I don't, or I'm all right with the, the, the interaction that I choose or the intimacies that I choose. I don't have to be what society is telling me is normal um so yeah even the word autism in itself means sort of being of the self definitely and 
you know, talking of labels, what would you say, you know, and, and people trying to label you throughout your life with, with, you know, being this and that and using it, you know, certain words to avoid saying the actual word. And what what was your experience like at, at school in terms of teachers and um, people trying to sort of help you in regards to education? But whilst sort of were they were they on board with sort of could they tell you had a hidden difference or were they just trying to use a different track and avoid that subject and just you know pursue your your education the same as everybody else yeah so I think um you know I'm in the last few weeks especially I've been speaking to people you know kind of um who have different needs at the school um you know whether it's because they have a learning disability or whether it's because they're autistic or whether it is you know both or whatever they have different needs at school and I think especially if if uh, you are in the system and you fall on one end of uh, your kind of needs and it's not in the masses of what most people need, you're going to get missed out. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I don't have a learning disability. I'm hyperlexic. I, I'm, I'm, I was particularly good academically, um, but I was a bit too good academically in that the teachers were like, oh, I, don't know, I don't know what to do with her. So I just used to get sat in the corner on my own and just handed a book and told to get on with it. Like, you know, it, I was I was so many years ahead of where I was supposed to be that they just sort of went, um, well, you're just going to have to wait for everyone else to catch up. Um, so school was very, very, like, obviously socially and from a, on a social level, it was disorientating and frightening, especially from a sensory level. It was, it was horrible um from a physical level it was uh, painful and confusing um so um but on an academic level on the learning level it was also just frustrating because I'd be like I can do that already like what? I'm not learning anything and I love to learn so I just used to get frustrated and I'd come home and I'd say to my mom I don't want to go to school anymore because you know the other kids are learning to read and I'm you know working with Pride and Prejudice right now so you know it's um so I think that you know often with school and education that you do get missed out if you're on um kind of if if if, if your needs aren't the kind of majority needs um which, whichever end you're on um that so yeah it was frustrating I just I used to fall asleep in class quite a lot <laughs> uh, it sounds like me I love a good yeah. sleep at school um, yeah. so talking about being ap- academic you went on to study at the University of Bristol graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature and a Master of Arts in Shakespeare Studies was there ever any distractions that sort of held you back because of your um obviously you know you're autistic and a dyspraxia did that sort of did anything distract you from succeeding in the way that you wanted to do other things as well um, I mean, within the education system, definitely. And it's actually strange looking back at it now because, um, you know, obviously I've over the years found ways of masking and hiding things um, and also blaming it on other things, you know. So um, when I was at university, like I'm, I love academia and I, I really love uh, learning, writing, especially English. Um, but I never went to a lecture in three years because I couldn't handle the people. So there were too many people and it was overwhelming and I couldn't sit in an environment in a lecture hall surrounded. Um, so I didn't go to lectures for three years. So I paid for a degree where essentially I wasn't getting the, any actual teaching that, the, that, that was given with the degree. I was having to basically self-teach for my entire degree. 
um because I uh you know I I wasn't aware that I was autistic and that I needed um maybe different um learning environments maybe I'd been able to do it now maybe I'd be able to get it online or something but my options were go to a lecture and be overwhelmed and confused or don't go so I actually didn't go for three years and actually when I got my degree in the end I went to get my graduation certificate and apparently everybody in my year was like who is that we've <laughs> never seen her <laughs> we didn't even know she was on our course um because you know that so that that did definitely and I didn't I should have got first and I didn't get first because I was having to basically self-teach my my um you know my my degree um so that definitely had an impact um you know the kind of uh, making money for instance so I was a student needed to make money um and I tried so many different jobs and I couldn't really do any of them either because of the environmental stimulus or the physical requirements so I tried to do uh, cocktail waitressing for instance and because of my dyspraxia I found it almost impossible to get out to the tables without falling over I dropped about four million cocktails um like I was you know I was I was constantly just just trashing things and falling down the stairs and um and it was just too bright and too loud so you know I tried to do so many different uh like kind of ways of earning money throughout my degree that I couldn't stick out for longer than two weeks because of many different (laughs) inabilities to do stuff um so yeah looking back it had a massive impact um and I think it still does you know there's a reason why I chose a career that well, not chose, ended up in a career which is essentially sitting down at a desk on my own all day. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like the idea. That sounds like the better the idea. Yeah. Little, away from people, just, you know, no, yeah. no alcohol, no no walking around people in busy busy restaurants, busy bars, just do your own thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I'm very lucky, actually, and that's something that I've been thinking more and more about. I was unable to hold down a job um, in my 20s um, because of the reasons I mentioned, but also just because, you know, offices, for example, are really overwhelming. And um, I would have frequent meltdowns. I'd be off work. You know, I couldn't really hold down a job. Um, So I'm incredibly and I know that the percentage of people, you know, who potentially are autistic and, and can't find employment or keep employment is a massive issue. And I have no doubt whatsoever that um had I not been lucky enough to become an author I would be on that list of people because I am not really built for a work environment <laughs> um so I feel very lucky that I managed to find the one thing I could do at, you know sustainably essentially yeah I, I think I, I feel like that you some people are capable of of, of you know holding down a job it's more about sort of the infrastructure and the people that are actually there around you because if they are able to understand and help you you know you've mm. got a better chance of succeeding whereas you know the fact that you work by yourself you've got no one sort of you know micromanaging you watching what you're doing you know yes. watching you waiting for you to fail so that they can mock you for it rather than jump in and say no this is how you do it come along and I'll, I'll, I'll go through it with you that doesn't seem to happen most days support you know it's about support and that's what I mean like absolutely there is no there's nothing stopping us from being amazing at jobs it's the support levels that we maybe not aren't getting so you know it it 
you know I, I see a therapist every week and yesterday I was very overwhelmed because I've been doing a lot of work and online and stuff like that so when my overwhelm levels get too high I, I struggle with meltdowns um, so one of the things I do is now now that I'm aware I try and limit the stimulus so that it kind of keeps that down lower and um, one of the things my therapist did yesterday was um, I said I'm feeling quite um, you know overwhelmed and she got up and she turned all the lights on the off in the in the therapy room um, which immediately had an impact like immediately like my stress levels went down a little bit um, you know then she shut the curtains and it went down a little bit more um, and you know just that kind of support that kind of physical support and that you know we're giving you what you need in order to be your best self, essentially. It can be so simple, but that in a work environment would mean enormous things for people that are potentially struggling with, you know, whether it's putting them in a slightly darker corner or in a slightly quieter area or giving them headphones that they can put on so that it's, or facing them away from, other, you know, there are things that people and workplaces can do that, that support and nurture um, those of us who aren't necessarily the same um as as other people so I think that's what's really important it's definitely not that we can't do the jobs it's just that we sometimes struggle with the infrastructure that's been put in place by a society that is not built for us exactly. yeah that that's sort of how it goes I think and and yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good that you touch on the light thing because my background is retail management and I you know I used to work in big superstores and small stores and it was always a blessing when the lights went off because it, it I felt like I could just you know, less, less sensory issues going on then. But there's always a contrasting thing. If the lights were on, I'd struggle. But if the lights were off, I'd have a nice day. Um, yeah, yeah. And just noise as well. Like, you know, so I kind of, in my mind, I see it as like a bit of a kind of sensory pot. So, you know, and, and that can be internal or external stimulus. And, um, you know, once once I'm full, so say like the lights are too bright, that will go into the pot. And then, you know, say there's too much noise coming in, that will go in. And maybe there's a baby crying and that will go in. And maybe I'm stressed about something at work and that will go in. And it basically builds and builds and builds. And if it gets too high, I will have full bodily meltdown and I won't be able to function for like, you know, between a day and a week. Like it, that will be it. I won't be able to. When that happens, I can't really walk. I, you know, it, it, there's a real... I mean, I'd like to do more studies and find out more, but there's a real crossover, obviously, between um, various sort of disabilities that are often comorbid, for instance. So, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the impact of being both autistic and dyspraxic at the same time, because I know that when I'm overwhelmed because, you know, of my autistic um, kind of qualities and the things that that my brain struggles with, it directly affects my dyspraxia. So I go from being like, like to being like, I can't really walk like at all like I can't really move um or I uh you know it, it has a de- direct knock-on effect so it would be interesting to find out more about that but yeah it's retail is an absolute nightmare you know like I have to I've got these like earplugs that I wear um so that my pot isn't filling up too quickly yeah you know yeah which which can be helpful to stop overwhelm Certainly. And you touched on your, you know, your bartending job in the past. And then um, I read online that you was approached at the age of 15 to become a fashion model. Did you enjoy (laughs) Did you enjoy that? And was it fun? No, it was very overwhelming. Um, I mean, I look back on it and I'm I'm glad I did it because I I mean, I think adventures are always good. And I'm a big Ten, I have a, a big tendency to say yes to stuff rather than no, um, sometimes to my detriment. But um, I didn't enjoy it at the time. No, I was not 
built for it. Like, you know, I, I am dyslexic. So, you know, walking down a catwalk is very, very hard. I mean, at one point I fell down the stairs of a, of a, of a catwalk. Um, you know, I, I fell off the end of one, I think at one point during rehearsal. Um, I, I got caught up in a dress I was putting on in a changing room and I managed to bring the entire changing room crashing down in the middle of a photo shoot. Um, you know, it's not easy being a dyspraxic model and I'm sure that there are many out there, but it is not easy, especially with being given like heels and tight clothing that you can't really move in. Um, so that combined with the fact that, you know, I'm autistic. And so uh, I found it all very dis- disorientating and, um, you know, impossible essentially. So now I spent two years basically being an incredibly distressed, confused, uh, yeah, disorientated teenager. Um, but, you know, it was an adventure. So, yeah, and I, I guess when, like you said, you touched on it about, you know, having to use your brain to get off a chair and stuff like that. When you're uh, a catwalk model, you're having to tell your body what to do. I guess that's very fatiguing. As well. like, I guess that was very tiring and demanding on you at the time, was it? Yeah, although I'm looking back and I am like, I think part of, so because I'm very conscious about how I move my body, because I have to be, because, you know, from both an autistic spectrum and a dyspraxic perspective, I, have, I kind of am conscious of every single cell in my body at all points. Like, I actually had a quite a good model walk because, you know, I, I was very, very... When I focused, which I had to do um, in order to do it, but when I focused, I was all right. Like I, I could, you know, get everything there in short amounts of time. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was absolutely exhausting. And, if I, and I couldn't do two things at once, so there was no way that I was going to be smiling at the same time, for instance. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I'm guessing that there are more models than we think that are dyspraxic. Um, but it's it can be tricky at times. <laughs> I know that um, Cara Delevingne, the actress and model, she she obviously is a fake, really um, high profile model. And people online remark that um, they 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 sort of sort of uh, blabbergasted how she manages to walk in such high hills when she's dyspraxic. And it's um, she might not be able to, but it's sometimes you coerce your brain into doing what you need to do because it's your job, I guess. It's sort of yeah. you know, it's like most dyspraxics can't write like, like without your hand hurting like I can't so I guess if you're a writer you sort of have to push through the barriers and do it because that's what your bread and butter is well you, you find other ways as well so yeah. um I, I can't hold a pen really either so like you know I've I struggle to hold a pen my handwriting is illegible um and within about like a minute of writing I will be like and now I'm too tired to do anything else I can't so yeah. um I realized pretty quickly that I was never going to be a writer with a pen ever um so I train myself to touch type and you know it it turns out that that is good for me like that I can do that it's not a you know touch typing is is something that I can do without discomfort essentially so yeah I'm never going to be a writer with a pen and you know should I get stuck on a desert island I will probably never write another book <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah like you're right it's you know I I could wear heels for a very short amount of time if I was completely 100% focused on walking and that's yeah. it. I would never wear heels on like a day to day basis because if I need to do other things like talk or, um, you know, look around me or smile or do anything else other than walk, then that's it. I will, you know, that I would be face planting within minutes. Um, I actually fell over. I went to the HarperCollins summer party a couple of years ago uh, and I fell over publicly four times. 
like four times in front of like the publishing industries, you know, shiniest and brightest, um, once into a road in front of a bus. Um, and I just kind of pretended that it was because I had too much champagne because it was it was easier for me to say I've had too much champagne than I am literally I can't stay upright if I'm focusing on socializing as well (laughs) (laughs) we've all been there you have to sort of mask sort of your clumsiness and by pretending you're either joking around or you know like you said you've had too much to drink which in like most other people would think that's you wouldn't want to say that because that's quite embarrassing in itself to have too much to drink so it's it's the way we have to sort of mask the way we are by doing by doing those things yeah exactly like it's crazy isn't it like I I um I I would literally I mean I'm so used to falling over in a very dramatic way because I don't do a little trip I like you know I'll knock into a waiter with him carrying a a tray of champagne and that'll be it and everyone around me goes oh, like that and I've gotten used to being like I'm fine I'm fine don't worry everyone I'm fine it's good um even though I'm in pain like even though it's enormous amount of pain and all I want to do is cry like a little kid I have to go it's fine it's fine because I don't want to embarrass everyone around me um and and I I'm okay with them just assuming I'm hammered as opposed to I literally didn't see the door, the, 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 you know, in the doorway where there's a little, little tiny thing that sticks up, like just, yeah, I didn't, that's gone. Um, so yeah, it's crazy how we have to mask even that, even physically we have to mask, um, you know, we should be more able to say, I'm dyspraxic, stop like staring at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the that's the shame of it, of it being a hidden disability in that, you know, unless you've got a, a um a tattoo on your forehead saying dyspraxic, you literally cannot get it across to people why you're doing the things you're doing because it's it's the way we are. It's it's the way we are our minds work. So Yeah. And when you combine that with autism, I was thinking about last night and I was thinking, you know, for instance, going on a date, going on a first date, like combined dyspraxia and autism like you know there is so much going on in in my body and my mind at that moment you know right down to uh like I have to focus if I'm going to pick up a glass like I have to use my brain to focus to know where my hand's going frequently I miss it so frequently I will knock the knock the glass over or I will knock the water jug over or something and they'll be like oh what was oh but you know so I have to really focus to pick up that glass and I have to focus to get that glass to my lips um so that it actually goes to my lips and not like into my cheek or my, the liquid up my nose or whatever you know then I have to drink it and I have to focus on that and then I have to focus on putting it back down again carefully and you know that's just one motion on a date combined with all the other stuff sensory and social and communicative and like that but just that one motion is already taking up like 25 percent of my brain <laughs> and you're like and you wonder why I think dating is stressful like you know it's it, people don't see the effort that has to go into looking like you're just having a drink, you know, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I know, I know. And um, so going, moving forward a little bit, when you started to write your uh, manuscripts and uh, before going on to become a multi-million award-winning best-selling author, what and who made you fall in love with writing? Um, you know what, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, for me, it's a little bit magical because, like, yeah, I genuinely feel like I was born with it. Uh, my mum is uh, an English retired English teacher, and uh, she used to read me because she's autistic. She has no real; she just has passions, and she has no real like awareness of 
appropriateness essentially so you know at the age of one or two she was reading me Shakespeare and Byron and and Shelley and Tennyson um and I was just obsessed straight away straight away like two years old asking for Longfellow um before I went to bed um because there was something magical about the stories and the way that the words sounded and the you know the whole thing about it just felt magical so I don't remember a time ever that I wasn't obsessed with stories and words. Um, and, you know, I was reading it too. I was, you know, I was uh, writing poetry at four. So for me, words were integral to who I was. Um, and I knew I was going to be an author at four years old. Like, this, in the moment that I asked my mum, like, what is this book? How did it get here? And my mum explained, like, you know, who Ina Blyton was and how she'd written books and all that kind of stuff. Um, I. I knew that's what I wanted to spend my life doing. Um, so for me, it's, again, I'm lucky that I've managed to do that, but there was never a moment where I wasn't going to be a writer, um, which feels like something kind of magical, like it came from outside of me somehow. Oh, nice. So that your your book, The Geek, uh, Geek Girl, was number one best-selling young adult fiction title in the UK back in 2013. The humorous story follows the life of Harriet Manners, a nerdy 15-year-old girl who tries out modelling to reinvent herself. Was that a therapeutic or a nerve-wracking experience writing a semi-autobiographical novel? A book, rather. Um, Yeah, it was um, both. (laughs) It was um, incredibly therapeutic because the reason I wanted to write Geek Girl, essentially, was that I had never read anyone when I started in 2009, I had never read a book that had a character in it that felt like me. Um, you know, I was like, where are all the, where are all the girls that, you know, fall over all the time? <laughs> I mean, in fairness, there are quite a lot of books about it, but it never felt to go further than just falling over. Like it was always like, that seemed to be it in terms of clumsiness. And where are the girls that are socially like, like inept and over, easily overwhelmed and, you know, that, that see the world in a, very list-based, fact-based um, kind of context. So I wrote it because I hadn't seen anyone like me in a book. Um, and I honestly didn't think anything was going to happen, but it was incredibly cathartic writing it. I remember crying quite a lot and feeling like this is um, the first time I've been honest about this, essentially. Um, but that vulnerability is scary because even when I was writing the book, I was like, no one's going to read this. My granddad's going to read this if I'm lucky. <laughs> Probably never going to get a book deal. Um and then it, you know, gets published and people read it and you think, oh, I really have laid myself bare here. Like, I've really been vulnerable on a very scary level. Um, but then people connect with it and you meet people who are like you or that it touches or that it makes feel more confident. Um, and that's life changing. So, yeah, it's it's cathartic, but it's terrifying and it's rewarding in equal measure, I think. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and would you say the character is dyspraxic or have you just wrote and wrote the book with your with, as a dyspraxic? Yeah, well, when I wrote Harriet, there wasn't I didn't call her anything because I didn't know anything about myself. Um, so, you know, I didn't know she was autistic. She is 100 percent autistic. Yeah. Um, also dyspraxic, you know, for the reason that I am also dyspraxic and that she's based on me as a, as a child. Um, so it's it wasn't intentional which is, you know, someone asked me the other day, how can you be sure if it wasn't intentional? And I'm like, I mean, just because you're not, you're not diagnosed doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that no one's put a label on it yet. So like, you know, yeah, absolutely. There are whole scenes in, in Geek Girl throughout the series where, you know, she's 
trashing things and dropping things and sm- basically if I can break something and it's within a 10 mile radius I will do it um, <laughs> um but yeah so it's you know it's I think it's good to have characters you know like us out there you know representing in fiction I'm really pleased that you know it's it's out there doing what you said and um you know it'll when people more people go on to read the book in the series of the books you know they'll um associate themselves with the character and give them confidence you know the fact that it's not it's not different it's it's it is normal and there's other people out there um just like them so yeah it's actually a double whammy you know because obviously since uh coming coming sport as they call it um like uh, people have been kind of contacting me and saying you know I'm autistic or my kid is autistic and they really identified with the books and they really felt like, passionate and, and happy to see someone like us or like them in the books but you know the reality is that if you sell three and a half million books not everybody who reads that book is is autistic or dyspraxic like statistically unlikely so um you know the reality is what i think is brilliant is that even if you're reading those books and you're neither of those things um you can still identify and love and relate to someone which just makes you know is society i think more aware that we are complex fascinating humans that can't just be kind of put you know a label on and just parked off and sent off into the sunset on a raft boat like you know we are are lovable amazing fascinating people and we deserve to have stories and we deserve to have our stories read regardless of whether it's by people like us or not um yeah yeah i I agree and uh with your diagnosis of autism coming um towards uh as you as you approach 40 was there any resentment resentment towards others for um you slipping the net for for those four decades did you ever feel sort of vengeful about it or yeah I mean I'm not a naturally very vengeful person I am I'm relatively positive as, as, as a personality but I'm not gonna I, I wouldn't lie and say that there were no moments of, of anger and disappointment and sadness because you know essentially I got missed and I got let down by the education system I got let down by medical professionals I got let down in a little way by my own parents who have had to you know who've apologized since and gone we had no idea and you know we're so sorry although you know in the 80s it wasn't a topic that people were really talking about and so you know uh, but I did get let down and I got missed by the people that were supposed to um, be there to look after and support me um, which resulted in huge amounts of trauma you know I mean I used to spend my time at secondary school every lunchtime underneath a pile of coats on the floor of the changing room because I was so distressed and so overwhelmed by the people, the environment, the bullying, the sound, the noise, all of it, that I would have meltdowns and have to just go underneath a pile of coats. And, you know, I look back at my 11 year old self with just a breaking heart because I'm like, I shouldn't have had to do that. Like I, someone should have, some adult should have stepped in and helped me, um, but they didn't. And so, yeah, there is an element of anger and disappointment, but, you know, I can't change the past. So all I can do is, speak about it and hopefully in speaking about it I mean help other people like me not get missed um and thus turn it into a positive I guess yeah women in general seem to go amiss when it comes to their learning disability or differences when it comes to getting the recognition for it why do you think that's the case 
Well, I mean, it's particularly in with autism. Um, it's it was always uh, like back in the day. It's got a very complex and, and quite disturbing history. But um, back in the day, you know, scientists didn't even believe that girls and women could be autistic. Um, we they didn't believe that we had brains that were complex enough. <laughs> um, so you know, the studies that were done were studies on boys. So they looked at you know, how it represented in boys and and what boys were particularly interested in doing and how boys behaved if they for instance were autistic um and it's only really really recently that people are starting to go huh because i mean at one point in the 90s there were 16 times more boys diagnosed as autistic than girls um and i don't believe that given us a neurodivergence i don't believe it's a male neurodivergence how can that possibly be the case so in that case 15 of those 16 girls were being missed um and I think it's because society and medical professionals were still kind of working out what it was, you know, autism wasn't even named until the early 1900s. Um, and it didn't go into the DSM um, as, you know, kind of being, no, yeah, early 1900s. I'm thinking about the right decade, yeah, right century. But either way, it was, it was male-based. And so not only were the medical professionals and, you know, the educational system um, looking at boy boy autism essentially and how that that came across but that was then being related to the media and fiction so you know essentially if you weren't rain man um and you didn't have really great card reading abilities um or you weren't part of the big bang theory for instance like you 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 were not seen as as possibly being autistic so um and what's fascinating, especially is, so, for instance, with boys, you know, say they, for instance, and this is a stereotype again, and I'm not saying that this is what happens with autistic boys, but there's this media stereotype that, for instance, an autistic little boy will really like, I don't know, collecting trains or Lego, right? And that is, I think if a little boy suddenly starts collecting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, people will sort of maybe perk their ears up and go, okay, maybe we should be looking at, you know, if there's other thing, anything else. Whereas with girls, you know, a girl can have 75 Barbies, and they won't go, oh, hang on, let's have a look at this. You know, a girl can have, you know, 150 t- cuddly toys, but they won't go, this could be something because it's seen as just being girly. You know, <laughs> they're like, it's it's all the words that are, you know, with boys would set up um, more support and more interest in, you know, finding a diagnosis with girls. They're just, you know, put aside. So my fussy eating or my eating um uh, restrictions which are seen as fussy you know my uh easy overwhelm kind of was described as oh, sensitive you know <laughs> all of those all of the things that if I had been a boy would have been picked up as a girl they were just like oh she's just really bookish you know and it's it's a gender thing and I think that's why now more and more women are coming out and going hang on a second we've been measuring this by like love of trains <laughs> maybe it's not a love of trains maybe that's not quite how autism works so yeah, yeah I think things are changing and it will mean that less girls and women slip the net but it didn't catch me in time that's for sure uh, yeah <laughs> that is sad but i'm hoping the future is going to be different for the next generations um that you know we can sort of reverse the tra- uh, the way that people are assessed and you know it's not down to gender it's just down to if you've got the disability or not um yeah. You know, yeah. because, uh, you know, if you're regardless, if you're, if you're a woman or a male, you should be able to to get a diagnosis. Um, it's just that's the way I feel it should it should be. And yeah. Um, yeah, 
shouldn't stop you from from that and also you know important to point out that that boys can be and men can be missed on the autistic spectrum as well just because they don't also behave like little boys on the spectrum so you know it's not just girls and women that get missed it's also boys that are behaving like like they expect the boys to behave um so you know it doesn't do anyone good essentially i can vouch for that because as i said earlier i'm i'm 30 now or 31 now and i'm about to get diagnosed with autism so i've been that i missed that that um that that net ages ago and also it transpired that i'm also dyslexic and i've got adhd and that wasn't picked up at school or in teenagers so yeah it, you know boys there are boys out there that do do miss the net but pre- predominantly it's more uh women and girl uh, women and girls that miss it as well um yeah so yeah. it's quite it's quite a hard hard way to live but eventually you hope that you get the help you need yeah so a few people have like said since diagnosis like why do we need to label everything and it's the most stupid comment <laughs> so first of all if you have a broken leg you go to the doctor and they tell you you've got a broken leg and they give you a cast and they you know you need to know what it is so you can actually like work around it first of all and get the support and the help you need for it but you know also a label can mean that you um you understand yourself better like you know it's I know I used this analogy the other day but you know it's basically like living your entire life believing you're a duck and then uh being told at the age of 39 that you're actually a frog and suddenly you realise you're not a broken duck, you're actually a really kick-ass frog, but no one told you, and you spent four decades thinking that you were just really rubbish. (laughs) Um, So I think labels can be the difference between feeling like, you know, there's something wrong with you and understanding that there's nothing wrong with you and that you're just different. Um, So for me, they're they're really helpful. And also in finding community, you know, as as you do with these podcasts. um, Oh, thank you. Yeah, finding community and passing that narrative on and making sure that we're talking about it, that's so important. Definitely, and having had those labels now, um, being self-employed, I presume, do you get any sort of reasonable adjustments by your agent or your publisher? Do they give you more time or do they allow for things to go wrong occasionally if, if, like, if there's a printing error or like or delay, like a timing error or you know, load of spelling mistakes by accident? or Do they allow for that or...? Um, I think what's really interesting is that I've been very lucky with my publisher because um, I've been working with them a decade now um, and they have always made those allowances for me. Like they've always supported me in that way. So they knew very early on, for instance, that um, I was never going to meet a deadline. (laughs) It was never going to happen. I once missed a deadline so badly that I was still writing the last page of a book while the printing press was paused because I haven't finished the book yet. Um, I mean, that's that's how bad I am at meeting deadlines. Um, and, you know, they knew, for instance, that with public events, um, school tours, um, festivals, anything where I had to speak to a lot of people, that I needed a lot of time before and after to recover, to adjust, that I needed to um, have an area of privacy and quiet that I could go to. Um, you know, they have always um, made adjustments and supported me even before the diagnosis and I think that that's that's really important as well like you know it's great to have a label and it's great to be able to explain and now obviously I can say by the way all those things because I'm autistic and I didn't realize um but even without a label they were compassionate enough to to listen to me and for me to say look I can't do a YouTube channel because it's too much and it's too overwhelming and it takes me 
three days to do three minute video <laughs> it's not good use of my time I know that um, feeling. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and instead of going we need you to do one they were like understood thank you like that's you know and I think that there's a lot to be said for employers and that kind of thing kind of making adjustments like that even if you don't have a official diagnosis or a label because it's just being compassionate and decent you know <laughs> um but yeah oh. I do feel it easier now to ask for things I really feel blessed that, to hear that because I've had bad experiences myself of employers not, not being sort of forthcoming and helpful. Um, so that that's really good to hear, and I'm sure people will be pleased about that. Do you yeah. have any sort of coping strategies day to day for your autism and dyspraxia? Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm still working on them, to be honest, but they've been a lifelong uh, kind of even before um, diagnosis. There were things that I was working on. So, you know, small things can really help me. So I'm always carrying around like um, earplugs and, and that kind of thing so that if things become overwhelming, I can just shut out at least one sensory overload. Um, I write down everything, everything, like literally lists of schedules for my day that include have lunch and have a shower, like because I will not remember to do it and I'll get, I'll get overwhelmed and I'll, you know, especially if I'm hyper-focused, which I often am when I'm writing, um, I can go 14 hours without remembering to go to look or eat, you know, or drink. Um, so, you know, making sure that I'm parenting myself in a, in a good way. Um, you know, if I'm overwhelmed, I have strategies that work for me. Like I'll have an, I have an hour and a half bath every day, which, you know, it is is part is partly um you know uh, i mean it's obviously a luxury but but it is partly because that is how i decompress and if things get too stressful it physically will calm my senses down because all i can feel is heat so that's you know i can decompress and doing that on a daily basis means that my levels stay lower um so like for me it's just working out those kind of like strategies and making sure i'm never late for anything because first of all my autistic part really doesn't like being late for things and gets very distressed. My dyspraxic part can't be late for things because I can't speed up. So, so if I have to be there faster, it's not going to happen. I can't run. I can't jog to the place. I can't, you know, and the more stressed I get, the more likely it is I'm going to fall over, drop things, smash things, forget things. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of making allowance for myself and, and being kinder really, rather than just being like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? Or why can't you do that? And just being like, give yourself time to get there. So you don't, you know, fall into the road halfway. Um, so yeah, I think it's just learning what your own management strategies are um, to make your life easier. Definitely. And um, talking of time, I know you con- I'm conscious that you've got um, other commitments today in terms of podcasts. Oh, and no, not, later. not until later. So it's fine. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> so I was going to ask, because we're coming up to the final few questions, but um, what other plans, as well as writing, do you have for the future in terms of your career? Um, so I think for me, it's been a like, kind of natural um, kind of uh, hiatus. It's obviously COVID and 18 months of living alone, um, which, you know, was more distressing than you might think for someone who really likes being alone. Um, it's not something you choose to do solidly for 18 months. Um and, you know, that combined with the end of my last book series um, and my autism diagnosis, which has obviously thrown a lot of very, you know, big emotions and, and just it's been very disruptive mentally for me while I process and all that kind of thing. So it's been a really good time for me to just go, OK, take a breath. What do we want? 
um, and what do I need? So for me, I'm obviously going to carry on writing, but I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of starting to, I've written a, a TV pilot, for instance, um, for a, a TV series. Um, you know, I've, I've written uh, some ideas for other TV shows and films. Um, so potentially books, maybe for adults, but also just basically just having fun with writing and words is my my plan <laughs> um going forwards but who knows who knows what will happen i like the sound of that it sounds like there's a lot going on in the horizon which you know it's worth looking out for and um yeah. i can't wait to, to see and, and read um what comes out but in terms of living living and working alone um how would you sort of what would you describe sort of social isolation from your uh from your point of view, to other people out there in the community that have suffered a lot in the last year, especially from loneliness and, you know, just being depraved of, you know, interaction in general? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's been rough for everybody, hasn't it? The last year and a half has been, sure I, can't, has. I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody regardless of our situations, um, whether we're, you know, with a family, whether we've got, a, we're a single mom or whether it's alone, we've all struggled. Um, I think what's, really important to remember when when you live alone is that you may well live alone and have chosen a life where you know you enjoy that solitude and you enjoy working on your own and, and for me that is definitely true I'm a lone wolf that's how I, that's how I exist um however that doesn't mean that I want to be legally forced to be on my own for you know a year and a half um because I still need that human interaction I just need to be able to control it you know I need to be able to limit it and ma- manage it according to my energy levels um and actually having no interaction with anybody for such a long period of time is incredibly damaging to mental health you know and I really struggled with depression and anxiety um and creativity over the last year and a half um so I think it's important to remember like if you're someone who is quite a loner by nature and you choose to live alone doesn't mean that you're not going to find that hard to be forced into that situation for a long period of time um and we all just have to kind of be kind kind to ourselves and you know accept that the mental health and um, deterioration that comes with that is it's not our fault essentially I mean no one saw a pandemic coming so well some maybe some people did maybe some people should have done but that's not really that's not really the point um you know the normal person out there didn't it wasn't prepared for it and we're not mentally prepared for it or built for it necessarily so yeah I know yeah. I struggle I mean, you, you can prepare for an asteroid and I suppose you can deal with an asteroid coming towards Earth. But, you know, I guess pandemic, you just never know where it's going to happen. So we was all caught short, basically, um, and underprepared. But... Exactly. We had, no, we had no deadlines. Like, we had no end point, you know? Like, it's, it wasn't even, especially someone who's autistic and really, really appreciates schedules and, um, you know, kind of having things in the diary that I know exactly when, when's going or not. Like, we didn't get one for the pandemic. It wasn't like it's going to start in March and end in October. Like, it, it was like, it's kind of going on indefinitely and we don't know. And you can't manage that, you know? Like, you can't make plans around it. You can't, you know, mentally prepare around it. It's just seems infinite it seems like it's going to go on forever um and that's damaging in itself I think I think if we'd been given a cut-off point we might have maybe managed it a little easier <laughs> yeah yeah we all sort of rely on deadlines I suppose but you know it's just it's been it's been tough hasn't it for everybody but it's yeah. um yeah. It, it's sort of it's been sort of intriguing you know, how we're going to come out the other side I, I should uh, once things all, all get back to back to the roadmap but 
Yeah. Although interestingly, I was talking to someone recently, yesterday actually, about the impact that this pandemic has had on um, autism diagnosis, for example, where, for instance, obviously children have been at home rather than at school, um, which has a allowed so some of them that have been struggling at school are suddenly not struggling so much at home because they're not being um they're the they're not as around as many people there's not as much external stimulus going on so actually they have found it easier which has made it kind of highlighted that there's an issue that they need support at school um and also you know they're spending more time with their parents so perhaps previously their parents were like they're fine and after you know a year and a half at home their parents are like okay we're sort of understanding now that they might need more support <laughs> Um, so I think that, you know, the pandemic in itself may have brought a lot to the surface for a lot of children and adults, um, which might be, you know, a tiny silver lining, maybe. Definitely. I mean, there's a saying that, you know, um, pancakes have two sides and to every uh, pancake is a different it's a different side, you know. So when you flip, flip things, there's going to be a different outcome. But sometimes the outcome that you weren't expecting is probably better than the one you wanted. And although people have had it hard the past year, some people have sort of found that they've been, it's enabled them to find out that they had differences because they've been taken away from what they're used to. And it's, it's sort of highlighted certain things that were different about them that other people actually cottoned on to. And it, they actually took the time to go, oh, I'm spending time with you now. I know exactly what might be wrong or what you're struggling with. I know what that could be. Whereas before, going to work, going to school, going to college, whatever, you just didn't have the time to sit there and go, but what could it be? Now you had no choice but to deliberate over certain things. Yeah, and I think that's honestly why I don't think it's coincidence that I um, was diagnosed during a pandemic because, you know, the reality is is that before lockdown happened, I was incredibly busy and I was either doing school tours, I was doing festivals, I was, you know, writing books. I was, it, it, there was always go, go, go. And I was on a treadmill of, um, you know, kind of career and, and relationships and dating and all that kind of thing. And then suddenly the pandemic happened and I, it all went away and I was kind of left to my own devices. And yet I was still having meltdowns. I was still struggling with the things that I had been struggling with before. And I think having that gap and that space, if you like, that time to actually go, okay, something else is going on here. I'm not just overwhelmed by my work, for instance, um, allowed me to go, no, there is something deeper here. It's not just, I don't like doing school festivals. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think, yeah, I think it has revealed. It's kind of, you know, pulled back a bit of a curtain on on some people and not even just you know with things like autism but like you know with mental health problems and um you know various issues that perhaps we've been buried before and then suddenly revealed by all this time that we had to kind of sit with it sit with ourselves <laughs> would you say that your creativity is so like is mostly reliant on the outside world to inspire you do you feel like you're trapped being indoors by yourself in terms of your ability to, to think and be creative? Yeah, so I think I was talking about this the other day. So I have a lot of creative friends and I think that, that there tends to be two types of creative. There tends to be the creative that, that creates from a place of um, like sadness and distress. And then there's the creative that, that creates from like happiness and joy and peace. Um, and I'm the latter. So I definitely create when I'm happy and content and inspired and misery just wipes me out. Like it leaves me with nothing. I have nothing to give the world at all. And so I find it hard to create anything 
during the pandemic at all. It took me a year and a half, two years nearly, to write a book that would normally take me six months because I was just like empty, essentially. And I definitely take my inspiration from people around me, from people watching, from, you know, traveling for me, um, you know, from just what just being an observer of the world. So, yeah, the pandemic was not good for creatives that use that kind of inspirational source I'm sure there are lots of people out there who did amazing productivity um but I wasn't one of them (laughs) for me I think the lockdown not was not a good thing but it enabled me to 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 sort of challenge myself better because before I would never have decided would never have done a podcast would never have you know gone out of a way to speak to people um I wouldn't have known how to do certain things with technology and the lockdown gave me a chance to do all those things. So it, in, in a way, I guess it's 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 been quite beneficial as well as sort of diminishing in other respects. But, um, but I agree. It, it definitely pushed us out of our comfort zone, hasn't it? Yeah. And it, it's enabled me to become a bit more extrovert. And my personality is more introvert. Where, where would you see yourself um, from a personality aspect, away from disabilities? As, would you see yourself as introverted or extroverted? I'm introverted. I'm very introverted. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a heavy masker, essentially, you know, I, I've spent many, many years through necessity, building a mask. Um, and so I can do a sort of social mask of like being social butterfly and stuff. But it's, it's a performance, and it's not real. And I genuinely get overwhelmed. And I've had situations where I've been, for instance, at book launches, where one of my best friends was like, are you okay? Because the mask dropped, I couldn't do it. And I just went into like complete shutdown, had to go and have like, a, like sit in the corner of a bathroom with my arms like over my head um, because it, I couldn't mask. So yeah, for me, I'm an introvert hundred um, percent with moments of masked extrovert. <laughs> um, but no, the real me is, is a lie under a blanket with a book um, and a cat kind of person. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, it's we've all been sort of as dyspraxics, autistics, people on the spectrum, uh, neurodiversity world, you know, been putting on an act, a show for years, you know, we're probably the best actors in the world, I would imagine, um, you know, because yeah. we're so, so, used, so used to performing a play each day, every day is, is one big act and, you know, all this masking, it can really wear us out and, um, you know, we'll deserve a bit of a big break somewhere. <laughs> but, I think if you're not neurodivergent, you don't quite understand masking because, you know, people will say, are you masking now? And you're like, I mean, it's not always that conscious. It's not like mask on, mask off. I mean, it can be mask on, mask off. So if I'm doing, for instance, a a stage talk to people, it will be literally mask on, mask off. Like I will have a persona that I put on and I go out and I do it. Um, But on like a daily basis, you know, the mask, it fluctuates, it comes in and out, it moves here where where it wants to be like, and it's not something that you can just be like, and now I won't mask. Now I will be me versus now I will be an actor that plays me. Um, but it, yes, exhausting, absolutely draining. And, you know, I'd say I have a ratio of about one to 10 for social interaction versus alone time. Because I need like all this time to recover from being around other people. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Would you say that, you know, having to mask quite a lot sort of, has it affected any relationships or both in a romantic or friendship sort of way because people don't understand if you're, you know, being yourself or whether you're, you're sort of putting on a front or, you know, has it impacted you in that way? 
Yeah, immensely. Um, I mean, I've I've never really been in a serious relationship ever. Um, I've had I've dated a lot of people. <laughs> I think some people misunderstood. They were like, "Oh, she's never, you know, been on with a guy ever." And I'm like, I, I have dated a lot of people, but having a long term intimate relationship is not something that I've really experienced um, because it's exhausting. And you know, I I struggle so much with um, not just in my own emotions, but other people's emotions, and with um, kind of interpersonal um, relationships and, and and masking, which is exhausting. I don't think I've ever been in a relationship where I haven't masked all the time. And you know, the the rare moments where I haven't masked or where it's dropped, um, they've reacted really badly. They've reacted, you know, whether or not it's kind of like that's a weird thing to do or that's a weird thing to say or that's really put me off you or you know those kind of comments just mean that the next time you have a, a relationship you're like must not do that you know <laughs> so like and and it becomes exhausting and you know especially when you're quite a solitary person you kind of go well I mean have I got the energy to be in a relationship that is gonna that I'm gonna have to mask constantly and that they're going to want stuff from me that I can't give them, you know, that, 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 you know, they want to move faster than I'm capable of or, or emotionally get really pushy or whatever it is. Um, so no, I've never, you know, I find romantic relationships incredibly difficult friendships. I'm getting better at as I get older. Um, possibly because I'm meeting people who are okay with me, not masking as much. Um, but yeah, it's tricky. It's really, really tricky. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's 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 a battlefield sometimes, but it, that you know the way that people approached you in a, from a, a relationship side of things when you put your marks down, that's down to them really to sort of that's their that's their that's their problem. You know they, they can't handle it. What you know the real you, that's that's yeah. their issue, not yours. Um, yeah, I agree. They, I agree. At least then you haven't you know you haven't been with them for years and they've turned out to be masking themselves, pretending that they actually tolerated your differences. Um, yeah you've had a lucky escape in that respect yeah and I, but I you know from the other side of it I also do uh, I mean I guess I don't know if compassion for them is the right word but like essentially I have been masking when they met me so they have a version of me in their heads that is a combination of me masking and a combination of their projections which are normally pretty vivid um and it, they are alarmed by the glimpses of me not masking that they see so you know it's it's bad it's bad generally I think it's just and, and it's distressing especially if I like them genuinely and then they see me for who I actually am um and they run like that's that's upsetting <laughs> and it makes you not want to do it again because you're like I don't want to make myself vulnerable again if that's going to be the reaction so yeah it's tricky do they do they or those that have stuck around and, and sort of you know you've gone your different ways but you still kept in touch perhaps do they see you more as a sisterly sort of person rather than a romantic because they, they care the care they, they have to care for you different because you, you know we are different I suppose so do they see you more as oh I've got to look after her opposed to be with her that makes sense that makes sense yeah I mean I, I don't really have friends that are exes um I I know that's one of uh, it's an autistic quality although it's not necessarily one that we all have yeah. but for me the the bridge burning 
which is the you know the black and white thinking like we are dating now we are enemies type uh dichotomy is someone that is one i definitely uh have uh, been guilty of in the past so i have a lot of ex-boyfriends and none of us are really in contact um but um and many of them i've entered the relationship with because i don't feel comfortable with you know how much they want from me or what what you know the way they're treating me essentially um but yeah i think i confuse my partners quite a lot especially you know if they they're looking for an emotional reaction and i've realized since my diagnosis that essentially i um in a relationship which always feels like for me an alien concept i don't really completely understand it but um in a relationship you know they want emotion they want to see that i like them um especially in the early days and I don't show much emotion and I don't express it on my face or with my words really <laughs> um which means that they end up doing increasingly desperate kind of things to try and get me to show emotion whether it's you know flirting with other people or you know cheating on me or whatever it is they will do things to try and get a proof of my emotion um and I still won't give it to them so <laughs> it gets it, I, you know, it, it becomes quite unpleasant, really, because I'm still hurting. I'm just not showing it to them. Yeah. So now I'd say that most of us are not still, not still buddies <laughs> anymore. Yeah, I read the other day that you don't have much empathy in general because of your autism. But that's, that's quite contrasting because a lot of people with autism tend to have more empathy because of it. But I find myself not, not having much empathy. Is that, is that, was that, a correct thing uh, for them to publish or oh who wrote that no I don't I no, I I don't think um I'm I have high levels of empathy like it's okay. definitely yeah so I think maybe someone got the wrong end of the stick um I generally have high empathy levels like sure. it was something that came up in my clinical diagnosis like that I have um abnormally high empathy levels which is one of those you know things that people don't believe is can be true with with autism they're like you know you don't uh you don't show empathy I think the difference is we don't show empathy sometimes the way that people expect empathy to be shown um we don't show it on our faces sometimes we don't show it in our voices we don't we don't express it in the way that people want us to so the difference between feeling it and other people seeing it is obviously quite a big one um I do think in some areas I probably lack empathy definitely it's something that I'm becoming aware of that there are definitely moments where I should care and I really don't care at all. Um, is, that, is that what you mean for you? Like, you know, that you're aware? It sounds, of... like, sounds like me, actually, the way you've summed it up. But I was quite surprised. I, I thought it was a mistake on their part because, you know, it didn't correspond to the conversation we've just had and yeah. the, the articles I've, I've been scouring the internet for the last couple of days, reading and doing my research. So I was thinking, that doesn't sound right. But, you know, I, I have empathy in some respects, but not in, not in others. So, you know, it can be heightened in most places, but then I could be kind of like disregarding in others. And it, it can throw people yeah. off a lot. So, yeah. yeah. I, just... I, definitely, I definitely have. In fact, I would say that I'm, um, for me, I'm what is quite commonly, I think, in autistic circles, um, um, known as an empath, which is where you uh, literally feel what other people are feeling. Um, so it's down to mirror neurons in the brain, um, which for people like sociopaths and narcissists, they have under-activated ones. So they don't, um, they're the neurons that basically connect with someone else and what they're feeling and what they're thinking. And they activate in your brain to create the same feeling in you, right? Um, they did tests with monkeys and stuff. Like, it's a, it's a you can see it on scans, right? Um, so with 
uh, sociopaths and narcissists, they don't really light up. Sometimes they don't light up at all. So there's no empathy. There's literally nothing happening there. They can't connect with the other person. Whereas the opposite would be empaths where, you know, their mirror neurons light up as soon as they see something happening to someone else. And so you will feel the same pain, the same distress, the same misery, whatever it is. Um, And I definitely, definitely have that. Um, But it's not always a good thing because sometimes I don't want someone else's pain. I'm like, I need to work out how I feel. And I can't work out how I feel if you're busy hurting because all I feel is your pain. That's it. Um, Which becomes difficult in a relationship because you can't put forward your own point. You just become taken over by them. Um, So I'm not quite sure. There there are probably moments where I I lack empathy and understanding. Um, But generally I'd say that I'm, highly empathetic um so whoever wrote that i will take them down i <laughs> know uh, you'll be surprised by the, the amount of you know finding podcast guests and stuff and there's been times when someone's quoted somebody as being dyspraxic but they're actually dyslexic um and what staggers me the most is that the the like the the, the talents like agent or representative knows that the article is out there but they they don't realize that there's a mistake in the article which means that people like me go up inquiring thinking they're dyspraxic when they're not so i go into you know i mention it on sort of in general and go oh did you know so and so is dyspraxic and then i forgot they're actually not dyspraxic with dyslexic and then you know yeah. everyone goes oh i didn't know they're dyspraxic and then someone, someone else goes oh billy said that so and so is dyspraxic but but actually they're not they're dyslexic and you know it, yeah it gets it sends, yeah so when they're out there in the world, they'll write whatever they want. And sometimes it's not always what you've said or what you've tried to get across, you know. Um, and I think definitely empathy from a, an autistic perspective. Um, because I remember saying to this psychologist when we were, I was having my diagnosis, I was like, I definitely feel empathy. Like, and I feel like that's something that I shouldn't be able to do. And she's like, that's not true. Like, it's, it's a misunderstanding. Like, people haven't, it, it's completely false myth, basically, about autism. But it's, we don't have it in a neurotypical way you know so for me what's interesting thinking about it is how neurotypically it's often sympathy so it's actually not empathy it's sympathy it's performance of oh no I'm sorry that's awful oh that's really terrible it's actually just a verbal and you know facial presentation of sympathy but the actual empathy the actual feeling inside isn't necessarily there whereas I sometimes feel with autistic people it's the other way around and we will feel the pain and we will feel that but the performance of sympathy isn't really there. So I'm not very good at being like, oh, no, I'm really sorry for you. That sounds awful. Whereas inside, I might be hurting horribly for you. But, like, people get mixed up. I think sometimes you schools mix that up. I would definitely say that about the mixing up thing, because I feel like, you know, I definitely read it like that. And, it, I'm, you know, I'm sure it was written that way. But, you know, being dyspraxic, being autistic, being dyslexic, it could be my brain telling me that's what it said. Oh, I, might be... I don't mind. They can write what they like. <laughs> I, I might be wrong, but it, that's how I read it. And that's how I've, you know, I've took it. Uh, but, you know, the brain, my brain just isn't for changing. So, but no, if they've wrote it, then, you know, it's it's, it's out there. But, um, but yeah, that's the way our brains work. Sometimes I get mixed up and miswired and, you know. Oh, no, I don't mind. I don't mind what people write, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it it's it's part of the journey right into working out like am I empathetic am I sympathetic am I you know because we are essentially only aware of our own brains and what our own brains do um and how they think and that's why you can get to 39 years old and not realize you're autistic because I just assumed everyone thought like me (laughs) like you know and I'm constantly surprised by things I can do or not do that other people 
find difficult or easy you know I'm like what do you mean you can't remember every moment of your entire life in vivid detail including smells like how do you not remember everything you know because I just assumed that that's what the human brain could do um so yeah it's it's a period of, of experiment and research I think for me definitely and I've got one sort of last question because it's just come, come out of my head you, you just touched on it but would you say you have a good long-term memory and if so does that really help when it comes to writing because you can sort of recall things that happened in the past that you put into your books Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I can't understand uh, how I would write without it, to be honest. I mean, I I have a terrible short term memory, like can't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to set a timer when I put toast in the toaster, because even though it pops out, I forget that it's there and it will just go cold and I won't eat it. So, you know, my short term memory is abysmal, but my long term memory is insane. And I remember things vividly that happened at two years old, three years old, like um, and it means that when I'm writing, even if I've never experienced that exact situation, I can just literally go through my life like a film and I can rewind it to the bit where I find an, an occasion where I have felt like that or been in a similar situation or I can use those emotions and relate them back to what's happening in the book. And I can literally write those vividly as they were at the time. Um, and it means that my database is enormous because I have 39 years of those. <laughs> so um, my long-term memory, my, you know, which I believe is also not always an autistic thing, but it is commonly associated with autism. Like, you know, it's a huge gift. It's awful as well, because it means that, you know, if I go through a painful experience, I will remember that painful experience in detail for the rest of my life. Like there's no getting over it. Um, but it can be a, a blessing and a gift as well. So, yeah, my writing fully is built on my memory for sure oh good so talking of memory do you know where we can find you online and on social media for those that want to check you out and you know um, find out about your books and get reading yeah for sure uh so i'm whole smile on twitter and instagram uh i'm not on facebook because you know uh blah. but yeah uh, so whole snail on Instagram and Twitter. So you're welcome to come say hello. And, you know, I try to reply to everybody, although I think I might have to stop doing that because I'm not going to be able to write any new books. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I'm, I'm always up for meeting new people. So, yeah, come and say hello. Oh, brilliant. We, we, uh, we're blessed to have you in our community and uh, hope to work for you again in, in the future, hopefully. Amazing. It was lovely to meet you and I feel really honoured to be uh, on your podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure of mine to have you on and it's really it's been really nice to meet you and and get to know you better and um, I hope to speak in the future amazing you too thank you thank you Holly speak soon thanks bye struggling with your DIY we can't do it for you a decorating tiling window care bathrooms kitchens on suites too Commercial and industrial, RFDPM does it all. Roofing, fencing, landscaping, why not give us a call? RFDPM. Covering the southeast of England, please call 07958 249 781 for free, no obligation quotation. Dyspraxia Alliance is run by a group of dyspraxia advocates who are dedicated to providing support, advice, online safety, advocacy and much more. Find us 
on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come along to the spectacular dyspraxic event everybody is talking about. Keep fit with our free twice-weekly fitness workout. Search Dyspraxic Cardio King Mike on social media for more information. We believe every child has potential. We know everyone learns differently. We have learned that one size never fits all. Neurodivergent children and young adults should have the world at their feet. We provide the specialist equipment to help make that possible. For more information on how we can help and the equipment we can supply, please visit www.equipfullearning.org.uk. Thank you.